study in 2 Corinthians. Let me, let me just give you a quick pre- preview as you're turning to 1 John chapter 5, verse 13 tonight is where we'll pick it up. The book of 2 Corinthians, I think, is a very timely study because if I had to sum up the letter of 2 Corinthians in, in one word, it would be the word perseverance or endurance. Uh, Paul is telling us how as Christians we can persevere and endure life and life's trials and everything that life brings. And so I'm, I'm really excited about the study of 2 Corinthians. I can't wait to dive into that next year as well. But as we finish up 1 John tonight, uh, I truly believe that last words are lasting words. And even in the Bible, as the writers of these letters were concluding their letters, to me, what they left us with, what were their last words to us, were, were just so important because whatever they said to us at the very end, they realized and God realized it was probably going to be what was ringing in our ears uh, for, for a while after that letter was read. And so we come to a passage here in 1 John, the, the very end of the letter, where he just emphasizes a couple of things and really tries to nail them down. And, and, and one is that we can know. And let me just set this up for a minute, why that's important. Way back when we started this study of 1 John, one of the things we, we became confronted with was the fact that that John wrote this letter to combat some false teaching and false teachers. And that there had been false teachers creeping into these area churches and, and spreading false doctrine. And, and one of the things that they were sharing was that they were this sort of elite, super spiritual, connected to God group. And, and through them, they could gain this special knowledge. But that this special knowledge of God wasn't available to just, you know, average Christians like us. That we had to, we had to come through them because they had sort of a, a special connection to God that the rest of us didn't have. And John wrote this letter to tell his folks and to tell us, don't ever buy into that. That, that God is revealing himself to all of us. And all of us, if we know Christ, then we also can know all these other things. And that's why at the end of 1 John, notice how many times he talks about knowing. In 1 John 5, 13, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Notice the in verse 18 of 1 John 5, we know that everyone fathered by God does not sin. Verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and given us insight to know him who is true. John is saying, look, we, are, we can know these things. And it is in knowing these things that, that there's power. God said in his word, my people are destroyed because of lack of knowledge. And, and certainly knowledge that just sits in my head, isn't, it, it's the knowledge that we apply and that we use as a, as a skill to live life. But it does start with what we know. And God wants his people to know 
We can be empowered by what we know. And that's what John wants to leave us with tonight. That we can know certain things. The, the other great emphasis here at the end of this uh, great letter is on prayer. Because remember, uh, this letter has been written about how we can have fellowship with God. Not just a relationship with God, but fellowship with God. Because John has painted a really clear picture that relationship and fellowship are two different things. I can have a relationship with somebody even on a human level, but not be in fellowship with them. Fellowship means I'm on the same page. That, that we are seeing things the same way, that we are walking down the same path. And, and so John is writing this letter to remind us of how we can have fellowship with God, how we can walk hand in hand, arm in arm with God throughout our lives. And one of the greatest ways that we can do that and maintain that fellowship is through our prayer life, through our prayer life. So these are the things that John is really going to hit on as he closes this letter. So let's look at 1 John 5.13 for a moment. First of all, he says, I have written these things to you. The reason why John wrote these things is obviously he was inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to do so, but these things were also written down so that they would not be forgotten, so that there would be a permanent record of these things. These things were so important. That's why as we go through our Christian life and walk with God and and get into His Word and study and pray and all of that, that the things that God really impresses upon us, we probably should write down and refer back to them at times. Whether it's keeping a, a study notebook or a spiritual journal or something, because there are some things that are too important to forget. There are some things we should be continually and constantly reminded of. There are some things that we should have a permanent record of that we can refer back to and be empowered and encouraged by throughout our lives. And this is why John said, I've written these things to you. And oh, by the way, let's also remember that the Bible teaches us, and we're going to see this when we get to 2 Corinthians next semester, that we are a letter as well. That the Bible says that every Christian is a letter being written by God, not with ink, but with the Holy Spirit of God. We are a living letter, and God wants to write a story through our lives. Not only, obviously, so that, again, we have a written permanent record of what God has done in our lives, but so others, in a sense, can read our story can become acquainted with our God story and be encouraged by it and maybe drawn to God by it. That's why John says, I've written these things to you. And then he says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. Let's remember again that the word believe in the original language means to entrust, to place confidence in. That belief in the Bible is not just some intellectual assent to some fact. It is, it is a conviction that's going to change the way I live and the choices that I make. If I truly believe something, then my life will change because of it. I will be guided by my beliefs if they are truly my beliefs. And so when he says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, he's saying, right now even, are you trusting in the Son of God? Are you and I placing our confidence, even at this very moment, in the Son of God? Because it's one thing for us when we became a Christian 
to say, Jesus, I trust you to forgive me of my sins and to save my soul and to take me to heaven one day. I trust you. I have confidence that you can do that. But then sometimes as Christians, even though we trusted him for our eternal destiny, we have a hard time trusting him for the everyday things of life. And so John is also reminding all of us again, Do we need to sort of renew our trust and and place our confidence once again back to Jesus Christ? Because again, it's not the amount of faith that we have, because Jesus said we could have faith the size of a mustard seed and do great things. It's more the object of our faith that counts. And that's why he says... Who do you believe in? Or what do you believe in? And, and God wants to encourage us to believe in the name of the Son of God. Why does he use that phrase? Because in Bible times, a name or the name of somebody embodied or encompassed all that they were. So to say that we are believing in the name of the Son of God, he's simply saying that, that we have come to believe in, in who Jesus is and what he claims to be and who he claims to be, and that the name Jesus Christ, the name above all names, as Paul says in the book of Philippians, he is the one that we have placed our confidence and our trust in. He's the one we are wanting to guide our life. And he's the one who's changed the trajectory of our life. So, I have written these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Notice here that knowing I have eternal life is a present possession. One of the sad things that I've encountered over the years as a Christian and as a pastor is talking to people about their eternal destiny. And uh, a lot of times you you will get this response. Well, I I hope I go to heaven someday when I die. And they'll even maybe go a little bit further. And especially if if they believe in works in some way, uh, they will say something like, well, I hope that I'll go to heaven. And I hope when God weighs my good works and weighs my bad works, that my good works will outweigh my bad works and that God will let me in. Well, see, the reason why God doesn't work that way and he he calls us by faith to salvation is because he wants us not to wait till we get to heaven to find out whether we made it or not. He wants us to know now eternal life is a present possession that we can have right now and that we know that we can have right now. There's no way we're going to walk in fellowship with a God that we're still not sure we have a relationship with. If I have to spend my whole life as a Christian wondering, well, am I a Christian? Maybe I'm not. Am I in the family? Am I not? Whatever. Then we're never going to really build fellowship with God because we're still not going to have nailed down a relationship with God. And John says, I've written these things to you who believe in the name of Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, because again, let's remember something. Eternal life is defined in the Bible as not a quantity of life, but a quality of life. One of the things that the original words in the Greek language imply by the words eternal life is that, first of all, it's a genuine life. It's the real deal. It's not something fake. It's not just an image that I'm portraying. It's, it's not a put-on. That, that the life that God gives me through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ is real. It is genuine. There is real substance there. The next thing eternal life implies is that it is absolutely fulfilling. 
that, that there is no fulfillment and satisfaction I will gain or get in anyone or anything or in this world that, that Jesus Christ in a relationship with him cannot give me. That is the highest fulfillment, that is the highest satisfaction, the highest quality of life that a human being can experience on this earth. Can folks without Jesus Christ have a good life? Yes. Can they enjoy the best life? No. Because the best life only comes through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And also in this phrase, eternal life, or these words, there is an implication that it implies an inner vitality or energy that stirs us to action, which is why it's talking about life. Life is what I'm alive to. And one of the things that God wants to do in our lives as Christians is give us sort of a supernatural energy and vitality so that when we wake up every day, we're not facing life with, oh, I've got to go through another day as a Christian. Yeah. Wow, God, I'm your son. Yippee. No. <laughs> There's an energy there. There's a vitality there that stirs us to action. In fact, a Christian who's in fellowship with God can't be passive, can't just sit on their hands, can't just sit in the chair. They have to get up and do something because they've allowed God to energize them and to pour not only His Spirit into them, but this vitality and energy that's going to stir them to get up and get involved and do something with their lives. The word no that I've talked about throughout this passage of Scripture is a word in the original language that literally means belonging. See, God wants to know, wants me to know I belong to Him. In fact, by that, God understands as human beings because He created us and know, knows us inside out and knows us better than we even know ourselves that we desire to belong. All human beings want to belong. They want to belong. They, they want to feel a sense of belonging, that they fit somewhere. And God says, I can take care of that through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. You can know that you are part of the family of God and that you belong and that there's a place for you at the table, if you will. At the kingly table that we talked about when we had the night of mind worship several weeks ago. That's what God wants us to know, that we belong. That's why it's important as Christians that we are stirred to action and take this message to those that don't know Jesus Christ yet. Because one of the main things they're searching for is a sense of belonging. And they try to find that sense of belonging out there in the world. But the sense of belonging at the deepest level that they're looking for, again, can only be satisfied and fulfilled through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And then one of the reasons why Jesus Christ created the church expressed in local bodies like Cornerstone Christian Fellowship is so that then God's people who belong to Him can in a sense come and belong to each other, if you will, and belong to this, this common band. That's what it's all about, belonging. So then verse 14, with all of this, he, does, he then says, and this is the confidence. If we truly know that we belong and we have placed our confidence and trust in Him, then we have this confidence that we have before Him. That whenever we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. 
First of all, the phrase, and this is the confidence, it literally means that we know through the blood of Jesus Christ that we have as Christians the freedom to approach God and the freedom to speak freely to God. And that we could pass right over that and just keep on going, but we all need to stop at times when we remind ourselves of that and think about the great privilege that we have. That, that we are able to go into the very presence of God at any time for anything, all of that because of the blood of Jesus Christ. And that we have access, unlimited, anytime access to God. That's huge. And that's what John is saying here. This is the confidence that we have before him. That whenever we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Now, a couple things. Because some people get weird when they come to verses like this. And they'll pull verses out of context and, and all of this. And they'll, they'll teach people that, you know, if you just believe and ask God for something, he'll give it to you. But if you look closely at this verse... Here's what the verse is saying. First of all, the word ask. The word ask implies a requirement. In other words, this is something that I require, God, in order to do your will and fulfill your purposes on earth. So I'm coming to ask because it is a requirement. And notice that this lines up with the principles and purposes of God. He says that whenever we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. So the encouragement is simply this. That as a Christian, I have the confidence to know that if there is something that I require, that I need to be a Christian that I need to fulfill God's will in this world, that I need and require to follow His principles and His precepts, He'll give it to me. In fact, I want you to see this is really cool here. Not only will He give it to me, but I probably already have it. Because one of the things that prayer does for us is that prayer helps us to realize what we already possess. Let me repeat that. Prayer helps us to realize, as Christians, what we already possess. Sometimes Christians say, why do we pray? God knows what we need anyway. Because a lot of times prayer is enlightening to us. That we go to God in prayer because we've got this need or crisis or whatever. And it drives us to God. And then as we spend time in fellowship with God in prayer, in His presence, God through His Spirit and through spending time with God begins to reveal things to me that I've already got that I might not have seen it that way before or looked at it that way. And it's like, oh God, I, I didn't realize that. Here I was coming to you, asking you for this, and I've already got it. And that's one of the great things that prayer does, and that's why Christians should constantly be in prayer. That's why in verse 15 he says this, And if we know, again, that we belong, 
and that he hears us in regard to whatever we ask, then we know that we already have the request that we've asked from him. See, prayer isn't always me going to God so that I'm somehow, in a sense, wearing God down, begging him for what I need. No, if God knows I need it, and it truly is a need and requirement of my, my life, he's either going to give it to me in the perfect timing that only he knows, or he's going to point out to me in my prayer time, Jeff, you already got that. Here it is. Let me show it to you. Let me give you a biblical illustration of this. Go back to the book of Exodus. Keep your finger in First John. We'll eventually come back there in about a half an hour. No, not, not quite that much want to take you to a very familiar story in the Bible, story of Moses in Exodus chapter 4. And I'm skipping over a lot for the sake of time because it's already 7.30 and I said I would get through 1 John this semester. So, um, but, but here it is. God has come to Moses and called Moses to be the leader to deliver the, the people of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And, and you know the story. If you ever, Moses comes up with all these excuses of why he can't do it and whatever. And, and God is very patient. You know, he banters back and forth with Moses for a while. And then finally, in Exodus chapter 4, the Lord said to him in verse 2, Moses, what is that in your hand? And he said... A staff, a rod, a piece of wood, a stick. And God says, you know, throw it down and, and it turns into a serpent and all of this. And, and, and God is trying to show Moses something. That Moses, what you have already in your hand is all that you're going to need to be my servant to deliver my people. It's not like, Moses, you have to come up with something that you don't have. You just have to take what you've already got in your hand and give it to me. So the rod of Moses then, in verse 20 of chapter 4, if you look at that real quickly, now no longer is called the rod or staff of Moses, but now very interestingly it's called the staff of God. Because the Bible says in Exodus 4.20, Then Moses took his wife and sons, put them on a donkey, and headed back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. Back in chapter 2, it was Moses' staff. Now in chapter 4, verse 20, it's the staff or rod of God. And we all know, if we know the story of Moses, what that staff did. That that staff was the staff that brought the plagues upon Egypt. That that was the staff that Moses held out over the Red Sea and that the Red Sea was parted. This was the staff. This was the stick. But the reason that Moses was able to do it is because that stick in Moses' hand was no longer Moses' rod. It was the rod of God. See, God is not going to ask you and I for anything that we already don't have. But what God will do is say, Jeff, what do you got? And like the little boy in the Gospels who had a few fish and a few loaves of bread, 
Jesus says, that's enough to feed several thousand people. Because once that little lunch gets into my hands, I'm going to multiply it. And that's why all God is asking of all of us is just to put into his hands what's already into our hands and consecrate it to him and then sit back and watch him work and watch the sparks of my Christian life begin to fly. Consider the mighty ways in which God used a dead stick of wood. God so used a dead stick of wood could be a battle cry for every Christian. Though we are limited and weak many times in our talent and skills and physical strength and emotional strength, we are not less than a stick of wood. But as the rod of Moses had to become the rod of God, so that which is me must become the me of God. Then I can become useful in God's hands. The scripture emphasizes that much can come from little if the little is truly consecrated to God. There are no little people and no big people in the true spiritual sense. Only consecrated and unconsecrated people. The challenge for each of us is applying this truth to ourselves. Is Jeff Royce the Jeff Royce of God? And see, many times that's what prayer will do. That's what John is saying back in 1 John chapter 5, verse 15. That many times as I come to God, like Moses saying, Oh God, I, you're asking me to do something I can't do, and, and I can't do this, and God, I need you to supply me with this and this and this. Many times God will come back in our prayer. Jeff, what is that in your hand? Just like Moses, it's a stick. You know what, Jeff, I want you to take that stick, and I want you to totally consecrate that stick to me. It's just a stick, God. Yeah, but it's no longer going to be Jeff's stick or Moses' rod. It's going to be the rod of God. And that's what God is asking when we come to him in prayer. He's not asking us to give him anything that we don't have. He's simply asking us to give him what we already have and to consecrate what we have and dedicate what we already have to him 100%. And like that little boy that offered his little lunch to the disciples and said, well, this is about all the food that's around here, but you're asking for any kind of morsels of food. Here it is. I'm sure even the disciples, when they walked back to Jesus, goes, well, what's he going to do with this? And Jesus showed us what he can do with that little lunch. And that's why, again, we have to quit looking at our limitations and our lack of having this or that. Because many times, it's when we think we have the least that God can use it for the most. Back to 1 John chapter 5. That wasn't a half an hour. That was good. We may do this. So that's one of the things of why John encourages us to pray because prayer helps us to realize what we already possess. Then look at verse 16. John says, here's something else, Christian. If anyone sees his fellow Christian committing a sin not resulting in death, he should ask and God will grant life to the person who commits a sin not resulting in death. 
Now, I don't have time to get into this whole passage tonight about sin unto death and no sin unto death. It, it's crazy how many different weird interpretations there are out there of this passage of Scripture. I'll just say that up front. But here's what I do want us to see clearly. Whatever your view is of sin unto death, no sin unto death, whatever, here's what God is clearly saying to us. That if we are familiar... And that's what the word see means. I do want to point that out in verse 16. If anyone sees his fellow Christian, that word means that I am personally acquainted with the person. There's a familiarity there. There is already a relationship there. If I have that kind of sort of bridge with some other Christian and I see them committing a sin, which simply means they're wandering away from God, what does God clearly tell me to do? Gossip about them? Go to another group of Christians and talk about them? Condemn them for committing these sins and wandering away from God? No, God clearly tells me, pray for them. That's what we should do as Christians. That when we are familiar with other Christians who claim to be Christians, who've wandered from God, the one thing we are called to do is to pray for them. And yet many times as Christians, we do everything else but pray for our fellow Christians when they're wandering away from God. And the Bible does say that God, again, through our prayers, will actively reach out and into that person's life. That's what the phrase grant life to the person. It doesn't mean somehow that they get saved all over again. Again, it goes back to the concept of vitality, that this eternal life that God gives us, this spiritual energy. And simply what John is saying is that I can be assured that God is doing everything he can in that person to turn them back around to him. And that he is giving them all the energy and vitality they need to repent of whatever wandering and sin they have become involved with to turn back to God. I can count on that. I can know that. And God's going to do that whether I pray for it or not. But again, why God calls me to pray for it is because when I'm in the presence of God, concerned enough to be in His presence, because I'm concerned enough about a brother or sister in Christ who's wandered from God, God will remind me and impress upon me all the things that He's doing to try to turn that person back towards Him. If I don't take time to pray, then it really shows that I don't have much concern for that person and I'm not spending time in the presence of God to again realize maybe what God is doing that I begin to doubt. Because again, many times even as Christians, if we don't see God work in some visible way, some right there in front of our face way, we begin to think God's not working in their life. Wait a minute. God works at the deepest heart level. I mean, he does that with us. Many times the greatest work that God has ever done in my life, nobody ever, nobody ever saw it. Even the people that were closest to me never saw it. 
Because God can work at that level. He doesn't need to work in all of our lives in this big out there up front way. Sometimes the, the, the strongest voice that God uses is that still small voice in my life. Where he won't let me go. And where I may even say, oh, if I commit that sin, God, a, a lightning bolt's going to come down from heaven and fry me. And then we commit the sin and the lightning bolt doesn't come. And then we have a choice. Then it's like, hmm, maybe I can get away with this again, which would be the wrong way to go. Or maybe we begin to see God in a whole different light. God isn't going to fry me. God loves me. He wants to turn me back and restore me. And that's why Paul says to the Romans, the goodness of God leads people to repentance. Many times when we deserve much worse at certain times, and we would think that God would act more quickly in judgment or bringing consequences, many times God puts his hands off in order to show us how merciful he is. And to really also test where our heart is. Is our heart truly with him and we're deeply grieved by what we've done? And like David, we finally admit God against you and you only have I sinned when he committed adultery with Bathsheba? Or do we somehow get this really weird, wicked thoughts coming into our head where we go, Ooh, I think I got away with it once. Maybe I can get away with it again. We need to pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ. Now the Bible goes on to say at the end of verse 17 that there is a sin resulting in death and I do not say that he should ask about that. And I think John is simply saying that there are areas outside of our authority and responsibility. And we're not responsible for people that don't know God. And they could be out there sinning it up, if you will. That's not our concern. If we're going to pray for them, we are simply to pray one prayer for them. That they come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. But it is not our concern with what the people that don't know God are doing. That's between them and God, and them and God will take it. We're not to be out there trying to figure that all out. That's way above our pay grade, as they say. But if I'm familiar with a fellow Christian, if I have a relationship with a fellow Christian and I know that that fellow Christian is wandering away from God, I have a responsibility to pray for them. Now, yes, for the sake of, you know, and, and when we teach on passages of Scripture, obviously we know that no passage is exhaustive. There's always going to be some things left out there hanging, but since we're here right now, I will say this. Could there be times if you truly have a relationship with a fellow Christian and they wander into sin and away from God where you could also not only pray for them, but God may give you an opportunity to have a conversation with them? Absolutely. Absolutely. But I think John here is saying that at the very least, or at least the first thing we should seek to do, is pray for them if we know that they have wandered from God. Then verse 18. Here's another verse that throws people for a loop. 
we know that everyone fathered by God does not sin. Well, there you go. Let's go home. Because a lot of people will look at that verse and go, well, that means that once I get to a certain point that I stop sinning. I'm just going to let you in on a little transparent secret here. Jeff Royce has been saved for 35 years, pastor for 25 years. I still sin. That's not what that means. That's That's a terrible interpretation. That's pulling that out, not comparing it with any other scripture and landing on some weird interpretation. What he means there is that if I have been fathered by God, if I've been born again, if I've been born from above, if I'm one of God's children, then I will not sin resulting in eternal separation from God. He's not talking about physical death there in this context. I think he's talking about spiritual death, which is the whole slant, I believe, of why I look at 1 John 5 verse uh, verse uh, 16 and 17 as dealing with a person who's a Christian and a person who's not a Christian. And it's not talking about physical death or premature death. I think it's talking about spiritual death. And the reason I say that is because in verse 18, when he talks about everyone fathered by God does not sin, we know that that doesn't mean as Christians we don't sin. That can't be right. In fact, in this book, he said, if someone says they don't sin, they're a liar. So we know it doesn't mean that Christians don't sin. The sin he's talking about there is the sin of unbelief that will then eternally separate me from God. In fact, John goes on to give us this assurance. Notice why we know that not to be true. Because John says, and here's another reason why, because God protects the one he has fathered. This word protects is a very important word in the Greek language. It means it keeps one in the state in which he is. That's what the word means. That means if I'm a child of God, God will protect me and keep me as one of his children. Can I just tell you from my own personal standpoint, this is why I believe 1 John 5.18 is one of the strongest verses in the Bible for what I, we call eternal security. And I think eternal security is so misunderstood because many of the folks who reject eternal security look at someone like me who believes in eternal security and say, you're just preaching cheap grace. You're telling people that they can become a Christian when you talk about eternal security and then they can go out there and live however they want to. Well, if you have ever been in any of my Bible studies, I don't think you'd come to that conclusion because you know I teach exactly what the Bible teaches in Romans where Paul says, should we continue in sin that God's grace should abound? God forbid. How shall we who are dead to sin live any longer in it? In fact, the first John chapter two, verse one says, I wrote these things to you so that you would not sin. I believe that somebody who truly understands grace won't have any desire to sin, but actually will be empowered by grace to overcome sin and not live in it. But I do believe that the Bible clearly teaches that once a person has truly accepted Christ as their Savior and has been fathered by God, God protects the one he's fathered. He keeps us in the state that we are in forever. And that won't change. In fact, let me show you that. 
Go back to the Gospel of John, chapter 10. Look at these verses real quick. Now let me also say this. And this is why we can't be the final judge of all this. Because people will say things to me like, well, yeah, but I knew somebody who claimed to be a Christian and now, man, they, they've abandoned God and they're living for the devil. What about them? And I have to say, well, you realize that the Bible teaches that there are also people, and I'm not judging that person as this, but that there is the reality that there are many people, the Bible says, who will claim to be Christian, but really not. That is a possibility, that there are people throughout the Bible that the Bible teaches who are false professors. They have confessed Christ, but they never really asked him into their heart. And that has to come into play here when we talk about that whole eternal security. And the whole thing is, too, I don't interpret Scripture based on experience. I don't take what I've experienced out there in the world where I I saw this Christian, I really believe this family member was a Christian, whatever. That's not what we base our view of God and our view of the Bible and, and God's principle. We base them on proper interpretation of Scripture. I can't use my experience in life to judge Scripture. I've got to let Scripture judge experience. John chapter 10. Look at what Jesus says here in verses 28 and 29, which goes along exactly with what John is saying here about God protecting the one he's fathered. Because remember, John heard these things and these very words from Jesus' lips. And it's just now repeating in a little bit different way what Jesus is saying here. John 10, 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Now, how can he be so bold as to say they will never perish? If there would be a possibility, because the word perish means eternal separation from God, how could Jesus be so sure if there was ever a possibility that one of them could turn their back on God and lose their salvation? No, he clearly says, I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them from my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one can snatch them from my Father's hand. The Father and I are one. I think Jesus is very clear there. It's exactly what John is saying. God protects the one he's fathered. No one can snatch us out of the hand of God. Once we are in God's hand, once we have been fathered by him, God will protect us and truly keep us in the state in which we are. Then if you go back to 1 John 5, 18, notice the other part of this. And the evil one, that's Satan, the subject of our just concluded hidden series, we know, and the evil one cannot touch him. Now let me touch on this a second. This is important. First, the word evil one, very, very descriptive words It talks about the one who presses against us. That's what Satan and his minions like to do. They like to press against us. And they like to apply pressure to our lives at times, hoping that we'll crack under the pressure. God allows pressure in our lives so that we will actually be purified and stronger. In a sense, God and Satan many times uses the same pressure, but God is desiring it and using it not to discourage us, not to defeat us, but to make us stronger under the pressure and to get rid of all the impurities where Satan is hoping that the pressure will crack us. So he is called the evil one or the pressing one. 
And then the Bible says that God protects us so that the evil one cannot touch us. Well, again, we know if we compare Scripture with Scripture that the Bible talks about spiritual warfare and all of this. So it can't mean that Satan doesn't have any access to us as believers at all. I mean, read the book of Job, right, in the Old Testament. So what does the word touch mean? This is what it means, and this is why it's important that we study the Bible. Because sometimes we come to a proper meaning when we just look a little bit closer at the English word or the Greek word behind the English. The word touch here in our English translation means in the Greek to fasten or adhere. In other words, what God is saying, what John is saying is that God will allow Satan to touch us if we're just talking about touching us. There will be seasons, there will be times where Satan is allowed to come into our lives and tempt us, but then he can't stay there. He's not allowed by God to fasten and adhere to my life to be a constant drain and pressure on my life. And this was even modeled with Jesus, the son of God, because the Bible showed us that Satan came to Jesus, tempted him, but then left him to come back at some other time. And that's exactly what the Bible is saying Satan will do with us. That there will be times, there will be seasons where Satan will attack. But once he's attacked, then he will pull back. Because God will not allow his children and not allow Satan to fasten himself and adhere himself to us to where he's constantly there. Because God knows we could never stand up to that kind of unrelenting pressure. That's important to know as well. That's why we don't have to worry about, you know, Satan always being around. He's not always around. And can I just say, most of the time when Jeff Royce has gotten into trouble in my life, I can't blame Satan or even his temptation. Most of the time it's been Jeff Royce has been the problem, not Satan. I think many times we give Satan way too much credit. Yeah, there's times. But remember what John is saying here. This is what we know. We know That everyone fathered by God does not sin, but God protects the one who's been fathered and the evil one cannot touch him. And then, verse 19, we know that we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. I love this phrase, lies in the power of the evil one. It's a great picture. It literally means that Satan is trying to bury people by throwing dirt on top of them. He really is a destroyer of people's lives. And he's literally trying to throw dirt on top of people and bury them. That's why it's such a cool picture when Christians are are resurrected to new life in Christ and when we use baptism as a picture of the new life we have in Christ where we are buried with Christ in his death, but we are raised with Christ to a new life, a life now that we have a power that is greater than Satan's power. And why John could say, the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And even though the world, those without God, are that Satan is attempting to bury them throughout their lives, we have been raised from that grave that Satan has tried to bury us in, and we've been set free. And we need to remind ourselves of that. And that's why Jesus encouraged his disciples throughout the Gospels to pray 
that they don't enter into temptation and to watch and pray. Because again, he knew the importance of prayer and staying in fellowship with God to stand up to when the evil one would come and try to bury us at times as well. And then verse 20, and we know that the Son of God has come and has given us insight or a way to thoroughly know him who is true. Not just, not just partially know him, but this word know in verse 20 speaks about a thorough knowledge. And we are, notice, in him who is true. That's pretty important too. Going back to even the picture that Jesus gives about they're in my hand and no man can snatch them out of my hand and and my father is greater than all and no one can snatch them out of my father's hand either. And then John writing that we not only know him thoroughly, but we are in him. And so that's a cool picture that we need to remind ourselves of because nothing can get to us without first getting through God to get to us. That's why even in the book of Job, Satan had to ask God's permission to in any way touch Job. And God in his wisdom knew that if he allowed Satan to touch Job, Job was going to actually be better for it. So that's why God allowed it. Again, if God allows it in my life, he doesn't allow it in my life to break me, to crush me under the pressure. He allows it to make me stronger and to purify my life and to strengthen my life. And then he ends with these words. This one is the true God. The real and genuine God. The real deal. And what he offers is the real deal. This one is the true God and eternal life. And that's why then he ends this great letter with these words. Little children. He's not being condescending there. He's simply reminding all of us, even if we've been saved for 35 years or more, that we're still vulnerable. We're still vulnerable to idolatry. And that's why he says, little children, vulnerable ones, guard yourselves or always protect yourselves from idols. An idol is not a little statue. I mean, it can be. An idol in the Bible is anything in my life that takes God's rightful place and hinders my fellowship with him. That's an idol. And that's why all of us throughout our lives are vulnerable to having idols in our life because there can be people, there can be things, there there can be even good things that I put in the place that only God should occupy in my life. There are things that I allow in my life that hinders my fellowship as a Christian with God. And those things I need to recognize as idols. And I need to continually throughout my life guard and protect myself from anything creeping into my life of taking the rightful place of God. I'll end our study with this. It's 8 o'clock. Let me go back to this point I made earlier. Folks, God isn't going to ask you for what you don't have. God is simply going to ask you and I for what we already have 
And he's just going to ask us to consecrate it and give it to him. Even if it's like Moses, a stick of wood, we see what happens when that stick of wood that was the rod of Moses becomes the stick of wood that is the rod of God. And God simply says, Jeff, will you be the Jeff Royce of God? That's the question I want to leave us with as we end our study in 1 John. Folks, before I pray, I just want to say this. You folks are such a blessing and encouragement to me, and I just hope and pray that each and every one of you has the best, blessed, safe Christmas and holiday season with your friends and family, and look forward to seeing you all when we come back after the new year. One other thing, though, I will ask you this. Pray for me. I'm going to be speaking on main stage on Sunday, December the 27th, the last Sunday of the year. And uh, just pray that God uses that message to speak into all the hearts who are here on that Sunday. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the things that we can know, the things that we can be assured of. And God, we understand that we don't know it all, but the things that we do know, Lord, help us to focus on at least what we already know and not get so worked up and 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 focused on what we don't know yet and god just help us to be consecrated to you and god i'm just going to ask that you would just bless these folks just lord would you impress into each one of their hearts just how much I love them and how much I am encouraged by them and how much I appreciate what they've meant to me. And, and, and God, just give them a great holiday Christmas season. Just, Lord, may it, it just be a, maybe the best Christmas with you we've ever had. It, it, it may not be the best Christmas we've ever had materially or or whatever, but God with you, Jesus being the the very center of this holiday season, may it be the very best Christmas we've ever had. And God, just bless their socks off, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, I love you. Have a great Christmas. See you next year.